Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. theme, I thought it would be perfect to focus on the emergence of societies. Societies such as ancient Rome, Japan, the Aztecs and Incas, and eventually our own society here in the United States. Today we'll start in with ancient Rome, which is one of my favorite places to study, and to do so we also have to look a little bit at ancient Greece, which is another of my favorite places to study. The ancient Romans intentionally attached themselves to the Greek society and culture as they built their own, which we'll see going forward. First though, here's a little bit of groundwork on ancient Rome itself. Our earliest knowledge of Rome's history dates back to the end of the Bronze Age around 1000 BCE. Here we find simple huts and small villages along the hills of Rome. However, Rome's surviving written history doesn't emerge until the 3rd century BCE. So how do we know the history that came before? Well, today I have two points to focus on in that regard. One is archaeological evidence, which is where that earliest knowledge I mentioned comes from. As you can imagine, 3,000 years can really take its toll on these old settlements, but there are still some remains which exist for us to learn from. I'll talk more about these as we take a look at the second point, which is Rome's founding myth. I'll be tying these two things together to help provide a clearer picture on Rome's beginnings. Now, as I mentioned, the ancient Roman society attached itself to the existing Greek society. The reason for this was to make Roman society look older and therefore stronger and more respectable. We see the Greek influences throughout Roman society, and looking at these we can see how not only did they borrow from the Greeks, but they also took these influences and sort of spun them to fit their own society. Therefore, they just weren't all original ideas. This is why you find the same gods with different names, such as Zeus and Jupiter, Hera and Juno, Hades and Pluto, Heracles and Hercules, which is a fun topic for another day. Put simply, it's easier to build on something that already exists than it is to break out and start something entirely new. And this is something you'll see a lot of as we go through not only this theme, but future themes as well. Now, as with quite a few societies, Rome's founding is tied to a myth. In this case, the myth involves key players Aeneas, Romulus, and Remus. The story of Aeneas is told in Virgil's Aeneid and follows the son of Venus, in Roman, or Aphrodite, in the Greek. Here already we see the Romans associating themselves with the Greek culture, but putting their own version. Aeneas was a Trojan hero who was saved by Neptune, also known as Poseidon, when Troy falls in Homer's Iliad, and is said to be destined to found a new Troy elsewhere. For this, Juno, also known as Hera, pursued him and tried to stop him because her love of the Greeks was only equaled by her hatred of the Trojans. Confused yet? It's alright. I still get confused from time to time when I'm keeping up with the who's who among Greco-Roman deities. Don't worry, I promise it gets easier from here. We're moving to the part of the myth that is more uniquely Roman. For easier reference though, I've posted a list of some of the gods and their different names on social media. In future discussions of Greece and Rome, I'll try to mention any that are directly involved, but that list is there if you're interested in familiarizing yourself with who they are. 
So we have Aeneas, hero of divine descent, forced to flee Troy. Aeneas is the mythological figure that the Romans used to make their connection to Greece. Aeneas' presence in mythology originates in Greece as he is included in Homer's Iliad. He then appears in Roman mythology and Virgil later makes him the central character in the Aeneid between 29 and 19 BCE. As did any hero in Greco-Roman mythology, Aeneas faced various trials along the way. Neptune saved him from the previously mentioned storm caused by Juno, though it wasn't Aeneas's plight that he was drawn to, but rather the invasion into his domain by Eurus and Zephyrus, the southeast and west winds respectively. It was their treachery in using his domain to try and sink Aeneas and his Trojans that angered him, and he sent them back to their domain with a threat to Aeolus, who ruled over all the winds, to stay on his rock before setting about saving Aeneas and his Trojans and sending them on their way. Meanwhile, Jupiter observed these events and assured Venus that Aeneas's destiny, which he outlines in its entirety all the way through and beyond the story of Romulus and Remus, which we'll get to in a bit. Next, he arrived in Carthage, where Queen Dido accepted him and his Trojans due to her own ignorance of the fate outlined by Jupiter, which saw her beloved Carthage being destroyed. To her, he recalls the story of the fall of Troy, and the importance of this to the reader is a firm establishment of the connection to Homer's Iliad, which was therefore a connection to Neus, and again therefore a connection to Rome and Greece. Now, Dido was a strong leader who fell in love with Aeneas, and Juno seized upon this opportunity to make a deal with Venus to have Aeneas stay with Dido. The plan was thwarted when Jupiter noticed Aeneas was delaying in Carthage and sent Mercury as a messenger to remind him of his destiny. This was successful, and Aeneas departed despite Dido's pleas for him to stay. In fact, she was so distraught by his departure that Dido predicted Carthage and Rome would go to war, never knowing treaties or peace between them, before impaling herself on a Trojan sword gifted to her by Aeneas. This prediction did indeed come to pass as Rome waged the Punic Wars with Carthage, ultimately fulfilling the prediction that it would be destroyed when they completely burned it to the ground. Following the events in Carthage, Aeneas' travels eventually landed him in Sicily, where he organized an event called the Funeral Games to mark the first anniversary of his father's death. Juno shows up here again to cause trouble by inspiring the travel-weary Trojan women to burn the fleet so that they cannot set out again. However, this was thwarted by a rainstorm sent by Jupiter after Aeneas prayed to him for help. Before setting sail again, Aeneas allowed any of the Trojans who no longer wished to travel with him to stay in Sicily, which therefore left a connection between Sicily and Rome. Following this, Aeneas ventured down into the underworld itself, where he encountered various familiar people from his travels, including Queen Dido. Seeing that the rumors he'd heard of her death were true, Aeneas tried and ultimately failed to soothe her, and wept at the injustice of her death as she walked away. He pressed on, encountering more people he recognized before finally meeting his father Anchises, who was reviewing his descendants who had yet to be born, including Romulus and Remus. Anchises then spoke of the future of Rome well beyond the twins, going as far as Augustus Caesar, who had come to the power in Virgil's lifetime. It's not related to our theme of emerging societies, but it's worth noting that Virgil implemented the politics of Augustus into his Aeneid. I'll have to work that analysis into a future theme because it's really quite interesting to look at. Now, heading into the next half of the Aeneid, we shift gears from wandering to warfare, 
Not all that different from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Again, they are tying themselves to the Greek culture. Aeneas arrived in Latium, still under the watchful and wrathful gaze of Juno. An oracle directed King Latinus of Latium to marry his daughter Lavinia off to Aeneas and not to Turnus, a local and ruler of the Rutuli. To prevent this alliance, Juno called forth a fury called Electo. The name Fury pretty much explains it all about what kind of being Electo was. She set out first to turn the queen against the oracle's words and insist that Lavinia marry Turnus, and then caused the Trojan Ascanius to wound a re revered deer, and so war, though unwanted, came upon them as if it were inevitable. Before the war began, Aeneas sought out allies while Venus presented Aeneas with weapons made by her husband Vulcan. No, I'm not talking about the ones from Star Trek. This Vulcan is the Roman god of the forge. The shield given to Aeneas depicted the future of Rome, very symbolic for this moment, and at the same time, Juno led Turnus to attack the Trojan camp while Aeneas was away, but he was forced to retreat. And then the war continued while the gods convened over the next couple of books, but I'm not really going to go into those details today. During a brief truce after Aeneas' friend Pallas is killed, a single combat was proposed between Aeneas and Turnus, which was an obviously one-side battle in Aeneas' favor. Once more, Juno shows up and causes more trouble by pushing Turnus' sister Juturna to drive the Rotuli to attack and Aeneas is wounded by an arrow, which is just a temporary wound because of course he has divine help and Venus helps him heal. In a daring move with a statement that Jupiter was on their side, Aeneas and some of the Trojans decided to attack the city of Latium, which till then had been in complete peace. Now keep in mind the importance of the gods being on their side. This attack led the queen to believe that Turnus was dead, proclaim that she was the cause of these evils, and hang herself. Finally, Aeneas and Turnus came to their final showdown, the one-on-one -on -one combat that they had sought, well, that Turnus, at least, had sought to avoid. Outmatched, Turnus was wounded by Aeneas' spear after what Virgil describes as quite the throw. A defeated Turnus made a plea for his life that very nearly worked, until Aeneas noticed that he was wearing Pallas's belt like a trophy. This was a fatal choice by Turnus that ended up with Aeneas killing him, driving his sword through his chest. And there you have it, a summary of the tale of Aeneas as told by Virgil. Now the Aeneid really is not an easy tale to summarize, and if you ever get the chance, it is well worth the read. I'll post the edition I have for those who are interested in it, and I really cannot wait to talk about it more in the future. Now we come to the next part of the tale. Aeneas has arrived, he has fought and defeated the people of Latium, he has married Lavinia. Ultimately, though, it's not he who would be credited as the founder of Rome in this myth. No, he is only the link connecting ancient Rome to ancient Greece. It was his descendants, Romulus and Remus, who came along and are credited with Rome's founding. Or at least one of them. Can you guess which one? The 700s BCE is where this more political aspect of the founding myth comes into play with Romulus and Remus at the center. Their story begins with the king of nearby Alba Longa, Numitor. He and his younger brother Amulius were descendants of Aeneas and Lavinia several generations down the line. Prior to the twins' birth, Numitor was deposed by Amulius and naturally feared that any descendants of Numitor would rise against him. 
In an attempt to avoid this, he made Numitor's only daughter, Rhea Silva, a Vestal Virgin, so that she would never marry and have children. Vesta was the Roman goddess of the hearth, and Vestal virgins made a vow of chastity and dedicated themselves to maintaining the fire on her altar. This, Amulius believed, would protect him from any uprising in Numitor's line. After all, how could a Vestal virgin produce heirs? Of course, as certain gods are wont to do, Mars just dropped right on by and violated her. That sort of thing happens quite a bit in Greco-Roman mythology. And so Romulus and Remus were born sons of the god of war. Fearful of their uprising, Amulius tossed them into the Tiber River, where they floated along and drifted to shore where a she-wolf found them and saved them. She suckled the boys as if they were her own until they were found by the royal herdsman Faustulus. He and his wife then raised the boys, who proceeded to get themselves into all manner of exploits, that is, until Remus got himself caught. This led to the now-grown Romulus and Remus rising up together and announcing their identities. The moment Amulius feared had finally arrived. Romulus and Remus killed the usurper and restored Numitor to his throne. Following this series of events, Romulus and Remus set in motion the events of Rome's official founding, or at least as far as the myth goes. Romulus created for himself a small village on the Palatine Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome, which would eventually grow to be the city of Rome. Around this place, he built himself a wall. The name Rome itself was chosen from his own name. So now you know Romulus was the founder of Rome. What happened to Remus, you ask? He was killed. By Romulus. And why? Well, he jumped Romulus's wall. Yep. Talk about a family with issues. Amulius usurps the throne from his brother, made his niece a Vestal Virgin so she couldn't produce heirs, attempted to dispose of the twin boys she had after Mars violated her, was killed by those same brothers, and then one of those brothers killed the other because he jumped a wall. The fabled founding family of Rome, everybody. <laughs> Back to our myth, where we must press on with Romulus alone. Knowing that he needed to increase Rome's population, Romulus invited the various peoples nearby to join his city. A whole variety of peoples from the surrounding hills took him up on this offer. From the ruling families, he gathered 100 men to form the famous Roman Senate, though he soon found there was a problem. These hill people joining him were mostly men. They were not bringing many women with them at all. Doesn't make for a thriving society when you only have a few women. So Romulus set out to try and negotiate with nearby cities for women, all of whom of course said no. So he and his Romans held a festival and invited the nearby peoples to see the city, including a people known as the Sabines. Now you might be thinking they were trying to win everyone over with this festival, showing how great Rome is after their negotiations failed. Nope. Romulus and his Romans had something a bit more forceful in mind. I mean, come on, it's Rome. Taking things by force is kind of their thing. With a signal from Romulus, the men set upon the Sabine women, taking them and fighting off the men at the same time. This is commonly referred to as the Rape of the Sabine Women. Now, I want to take a moment from our story to explain this title. The word rape in the English language has a different meaning than it did back in the Old Latin. The word comes from the Latin rapio, which means to seize or to carry away. This title, being of the old Latin origin, refers to them seizing the Sabine women and taking them for themselves, not for the act of sexual assault as we define it. I understand it's a confusing title, and I myself once interpreted it based on the English definition. But in this case, that is not the intended meaning and not what it describes. 
Now, I'm not saying the Romans weren't guilty of forcing themselves on these women. They were still taking them against their will, and the myth doesn't detail what happened after this. It's just not explained at all. We can only speculate on that matter, as some historians do. This is still a myth, after all, and outside the scope of what I want to discuss today. The exact reasons behind taking the Sabine women specifically is unclear. According to the Greek philosopher Plutarch in the first century CE, Romulus and his men took 30 women, all but one of whom were virgins. The married woman who wasn't a virgin was supposedly taken by accident. Hercilia was her name, and Romulus himself took her for his own wife. Some historians suggest that the Sabine women were in fact not chosen out of lust, as would seem to be the obvious reason to choose them over the other women present at the festival, but out of a desire to ally with the Sabines. Strange way to form an alliance, if you ask me. And the Sabines didn't think it was so great either. They went to war with the Romans in outrage over what they'd done. Who would expect any less after Romulus and his Romans quite literally stole their women? As the war waged on, the women are said to have accepted their new lives as Romans. According to the Roman historian Livy, who lived from 59 BCE to 17 CE, it was the Sabine women who ended this war. They stood between their Roman husbands and Sabine fathers and brothers to make them stop fighting. Livy states the women actually blamed themselves for the war and would rather die themselves than see it continue. You remember that queen of Latium hanging herself after saying the war was her fault? Not too different, really, except the Sabine women actually stopped the war, but at the same time had nothing to do with starting it. There was no divine influence here from Juno. She's not really around at this point. And so the peoples of Rome and Sabine were united under Rome, thanks to the intervention of a bunch of women who were kidnapped and forced to take Roman husbands. Remember, folks, this is the Roman myth of their founding. This is a big part of how the Romans viewed themselves and wanted others to view them. So Romulus had now secured future generations for Rome and a strengthened state with the alliance of the Sabines. He reigned over Rome for 40 more years, at which point he is said to have vanished in a mysterious storm at Goat's Marsh while reviewing his troops in the campus marshes. Several theories are presented by Livy as to why he vanished. Livy himself believes the version suggesting that he ascended with Mars, allowing a belief among the Romans that the gods were favoring Rome and thus they should set out to conquer. Following this mysterious disappearance and ascension to godhood, Romulus became known as the god Quirinus. And thus concludes our journey through the myth of Rome's founding. Quite a tale, isn't it? And I didn't even have time to include all the details! So you may be wondering, given that this is all a myth, where the actual history of the emergence of Rome comes into it. Well, it's everywhere. It's not just a myth, but the history of Rome based on how the Romans viewed themselves. It doesn't give us a factual account, but helps us build on what we do know. Myths often have some kind of kernel of truth, and however small it may be, and we just have to find it. This myth is, in part, built by the Romans upon things that really happened, and we just have to pick it apart and apply it to the factual information we have. Rome started by welcoming people with citizenship, and they viewed themselves as a composition of different groups with their city placed at a crossroads. This can easily be connected to how the myth has Romulus building Rome with the nearby peoples and the Sabines. The Sabines themselves were real, though their involvement was certainly not as the myth indicates. There is no evidence that any Romans kidnapped their women. However, it is said that Rome derived some of their institutions from the Sabines, and likely this is why the founding myth includes their connection as it does. 
They were important to Rome's development in at least a few ways, and so the myth integrates that. As we've covered, their beliefs come from the Greek beliefs, including the very hero of Troy who found the future site of Rome, Aeneas. So let's break down the development of early Rome and see why the myth is important to the Romans and our understanding of them. By the 8th century, we still have those huts that I mentioned earlier. There is also archaeological evidence to suggest they may have built defensive walls in these little villages. Kind of sounds like Romulus's wall, doesn't it? Hopefully not as violent. This is where we pull some historical knowledge from the myth using what we gain from the archaeological evidence. We know they were building walls at the time the myth states that Romulus built his. We can also see, along with the gods, Rome also borrowed from the Greeks with various customs and their military. The Rome's military would develop on its own path as the society takes shape. Another significant development observed in this time is the Latin language taking shape and the Greek influence in its development. The official founding of Rome takes place in 753 BCE, as is attributed to Romulus. At least, that's the traditionally accepted date. In truth, there is uncertainty on the exact year. This was, after all, a founding myth and not documented history. The written history didn't emerge until hundreds of years later, leaving only the oral history as a source, which isn't necessarily the most reliable one. Regardless, the official founding was around this time. We see the growing city on Palatine Hill has been expanded to include the Forum, which was previously part of a swampy marsh which the early Romans drained. This young city is gr rapidly growing and expanding, demonstrating their ability to adapt and innovate. This is also a good time to talk about Mars, the Roman god of war and father to Romulus and Remus. His presence in the myth and his position as their father, more importantly as father to Romulus who ultimately founded Rome, is telling about where the Romans position themselves. As the city develops into a republic, war becomes of great importance. For the Romans to include Mars is, in a sense, including war itself as part of their founding and culture. The theory that he ascended Romulus to godhood is mentioned by Livy as a means of showing the god's favor to Rome and of expanding through conquest. Remember that I mentioned this myth came into existence in the 4th century BCE, 400 years after the events took place. As a people, the Romans and their ways are well established when the myth first appears. I should also mention a few other areas where the Romans established that they were favored by the gods. Throughout the Aeneid, Jupiter is clear that Rome is destined to exist and be successful. Repeatedly, he intervenes to protect Aeneas and his Trojans from the wrathful Juno. In the underworld, Aeneas's father tells of Rome's destiny all the way to Augustus Caesar. In the war against Latium, Aeneas tells his men that Jupiter is on their side. And beyond that, Romulus is actually descended from two gods. As Aeneas's mother, Venus, is also an ancestor of his, again, multiple generations down the line. Divinity is tied into Roman founding, and Romans would sometimes actually tie their own lineage to gods. The two are simply inseparable. One last note on the Romans' belief that they were favored by the gods. There is also a sense of destiny driving them forward. This idea that who they are and who they will be was destined long before they were born. Think back all the way to the beginning of the Aeneid where Jupiter was assuring Venus that Aeneas' destiny remained unchanged and how, as I already mentioned, Aeneas' trip to the underworld revealed Rome's destiny in detail. When you tie this sense of destiny into the other aspects I've mentioned, you can fill in some of the gaps in Rome's early development 
at least in the mindset they must have held as they built their society. The 6th century saw the first major temple on the Palatine Hill as well as the building of Rome's sturdy walls. At the time, King Servus Tullius, a ruler of debated origin, is said to have ruled. In addition, societal organization is forming. Our archaeological evidence shows the emergence of aristocratic housing with this one smaller group rising above the rest. And with aristocracy comes organized labor. We're going to see that theme many, many, many times going forward. Now using the traditional date, the Roman Republic came to exist in 509 by way of evolution, not revolution. This new aristocratic class of elites had grown tired of the royals and the power they wielded and therefore transitioned from a monarchy to a republic. By 500 BCE, and out, we are outside any part of the founding myths. Rome has surpassed Athens in size, which is a feat in itself. Not only that, but they were using brick in their construction, a sign of their own development and improvement. This growth and success of the Roman people now takes us firmly into the Roman Republic, a society where power and influence came from fighting and war. They were no longer ruled by kings, instead they divided power among three governing bodies, popular assemblies, magistrates, and senates, with the senate wielding the most power by far. And this is where we stop for today. To cover our theme of emergence, I've given you a brief history of Rome from its founding up to and including the Republic. I know there was a significant focus on the myth, but the myth itself is important to the history of Rome's growth. I'm excited to delve deeper into both sides of this history in future episodes, but sadly, we must leave Rome for now. Next week, we're jumping over to Japan. I hope you look forward to it.